0: Today on Hot Nights and Cold Bodies, you've heard of getting away with murder. In today's episode, we tell the story of a man who literally got away with murder, but with devastating personal consequences. I'm Jeff Milstead, your host for this documentary series about true crime, not only in Tennessee, but the world over. I am a cemetery conservator and it is my work to clean and restore the grave sites of World War II casualties, men who died during the war and whose remains were returned to the States in the years following. As I was cleaning the stone of a man who died in the last Allied push into Europe, I noticed two stones with the same last name. Both men had served in the war in infantry units. They returned to the United States, but died in the years immediately following the war. When I researched their histories, I found a web of murder, deceit, and tragedy. Please be aware that this broadcast contains graphic descriptions of a murder victim and may not be suitable for all audiences. In May of 1950, World War II was in the rearview mirror for most Americans, even while the military was gearing up for another conflict 7,000 miles away. On May 3rd in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a city of just over 13,000 residents whose biggest claims to fame were a pivotal Civil War battle and a teacher's college, the front-page local news was the release of a new city directory and of a local man being fined $2 after entering a guilty plea in General Sessions Court to a charge of driving without a license. Before the next sunrise, however, a local war hero would be dead, and his assailant would be charged that day with first-degree murder. Almost a year later, Stanley Prater would still be dead, and the man who killed him would walk away from the courthouse, virtually getting away with murder. Wednesday, May 3rd, was a warm day in Murfreesboro, a perfect day to go out for a drink, or several, in the late afternoon. 34-year-old Stanley Prater was a resident of Rockvale, an unincorporated area in western Rutherford County, where he was born on June 26th of 1916. He was the child of a sharecropper and evidently quite the talented young man. Stanley was the vice president of his senior class at Rottvale High School and was a featured player in his senior play, The Man in the Shadow, a two-act play with four of his classmates. Stanley was also quite a basketball player, leading his team in scoring on several occasions and lauded by an opposing coach as being outstanding in everything he attempted. In 1936, Stanley applied, with several local boys, for the Citizens' Military Training Camp. He was accepted, and on August 3, 1936, he and four other young men arrived at Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, for training. After formally entering the Army in January 1941 and being stationed at Camp Shelby, Mississippi, Stanley received promotion seemingly at a record pace, being quickly promoted from corporal to sergeant, his second promotion within a month's time. He fought in the Pacific in World War II as a sergeant in the 148th Infantry of the 37th Infantry Division. After being involved in battles in the Fiji Islands, Guadalcanal, and New Georgia, Sergeant Prater was honorably discharged in January of 1944 after being stricken with malaria. Stanley returned to the States and found a job in a war factory in Ohio. After the war ended, so did the jobs, and Stanley returned to Murfreesboro, where his parents, two brothers, and a half-sister lived. Stanley was a lifelong bachelor and was a student at what was known as the Murfreesboro Practical Trade School. Stanley apparently lived a quiet life, sprinkled with a run-in with the local sheriff in June of 1946 over driving while intoxicated, for which he was fined $50 in cost, and given a 60-day suspended sentence. On that fateful afternoon in 1950, when he left Murfreesboro in the company of two men at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on his way to Nolensville, an area just over the Williamson County line where alcohol in the form of corn whiskey was readily accessible, Stanley had no way of knowing that he would never see another sunrise. That same evening, he was brutally beaten to death and died inside his own car. Stanley had two brothers. The oldest brother was Leonard Grady Prater, born August 15th of 1912. There is virtually no mention of Leonard in local publications prior to the war. Whereas Stanley was apparently an extrovert of sorts, as evidenced by his acting and athletic abilities, Leonard may have taken after his father, Bud Prater. The elder Prater was described as a hard-working man who not only farmed, but was skilled at carpentry and chair-making. He was a rather solitary man who enjoyed walking in the woods and simply listening to nature. Bud Prater had a beautiful tenor singing voice, which he lost after a bout with the flu in 1918. The Praters had relatives in Ohio, and by 1939, 27-year-old Leonard was living in Toledo, and presumably working in a factory prior to his military service. According to his memorial on Findagrave.com, Leonard was an extremely sensitive man who wouldn't kill a fly if it landed in his coffee. That's in contrast to the military record which describes Leonard as a soldier soldier. Private first class Prater's unit, the twenty sixth Infantry, fought in Algeria, French Morocco tunisia and sicily before heading to normandy and germany leonard received the american defense medal and his eastern theater of operations driven had five battle stars according to his few remaining relatives leonard was wounded more than once like his brother stanley leonard was also subject to malaria his first attack saw him treated in france and a second one in August of 1944 resulted in his evacuation and treatment in England. Leonard wrote to his parents that he was feeling better, but still not fully recovered. At some point in his career, Leonard's sensitivities caught up with him. Again, according to findagrave.com, two of his friends died in action, and rather than see his friends buried by the Quartermaster's Corps Graves and Registration Units, leonard took the bodies and concealed them in his jeep a few days later leonard had to stop the jeep to check out an object on the side of the road while he was away from the jeep an enemy shell obliterated the vehicle and the bodies of his friends after returning home from the war leonard also had his run-ins with the law over alcohol Back then, alcohol-related offenses didn't meet with punishments like those of today. Leonard was arrested in June of 1946 for driving while intoxicated and was fined $50 and cost and given a 60-day suspended sentence. If that sounds familiar, it is. Leonard and Stanley appeared on the same court docket. After Stanley's death, Leonard's life took a definite turn for the worse. Sometime after the murder, Leonard was confined to a Veterans Administration facility in Nashville, Tennessee. In September of 1951, Leonard received a visit from the War Department, where he finally received his Bronze Star for Extreme Gallantry in North Africa in 1943. Leonard's relatives told me personally that when he left the hospital, the Bronze Star disappeared. Leonard said he did not wish to receive a medal for killing other men. Which is ironic, considering that the last man Leonard killed was not on the battlefield or even in the war. No, Leonard's final act of regression was on American soil. On May the 3rd, the other man with Stanley was Leonard. In a drunken rage, Leonard beat Stanley to death on a deserted road and although he was arrested and charged with first-degree murder for his crime, Leonard never stood trial and essentially got away with his brother's murder. Here's how it all worked out. Stanley and Leonard, with another man whose identity we do not know and who apparently left before things really got out of hand, left Murfreesboro at about 3 o'clock on May 3rd and headed to Nolensville where they purchased both beer and hard liquor. They drove back and parked their car on a deserted road near an area known as Limbo Hill. Today, Limbo Hill does not appear on any maps, and even longtime residents of the area cannot pinpoint its precise location. Regardless, at some point, their discussions turned to anger. Witnesses reported seeing two men engaged in a full-out brawl by the side of the road. And remember... These were not ordinary men. Both were highly skilled infantry soldiers. Their skills would be dangerous to another, even while intoxicated. Eventually, after striking him repeatedly with a beer bottle, Leonard got the best of Stanley. The situation calmed down and they re-entered the car. Leonard would later say that he offered to drive Stanley home, and Stanley refused. Stanley got in the driver's seat, Leonard in the passenger seat. Leonard went to sleep with his head in Stanley's lap. Stanley never woke up. On the morning of May 4th, Leonard woke up and discovered that Stanley was no longer in this world. He somehow drove the car back to the family home where he and Stanley lived with their parents and parked across the road arriving at about 8 a.m. His clothes were torn and ragged, and he made the simple statement, Stanley's dead. He first told his father that Stanley had died in a car accident. That explanation went out the window when the father discovered there was no damage to the vehicle. Then Leonard said, I guess someone killed him. Pressed by his father, Leonard said, Dad, I don't want to tell you now. I'll tell you later when things quiet down. With that, he went in and went to bed. His father went across the road, saw that Stanley was indeed dead, and called law enforcement. Leonard was still asleep when the deputies arrived. When officers inspected the car and Stanley's body, they found that Stanley had two wounds to the head area. A gash over the left temple was thought to be the death wound. In the back seat of the car, several tools were found, prominent among them a blood-spattered mason's hammer. Sheriff Earl McKnight said there were traces of blood on the sharp edge of the hammer, and it initially appeared that the hammer was the instrument of death. Traces of blood were found under the steering wheel and on the door and fender. Also scattered in the car was a case of empty beer bottles and an empty whiskey bottle. Coroner Richmond Jones convened a 12-man coroner's jury comprised of men who were at the crime scene and said there was no doubt in his mind a murder had occurred. When deputies entered Leonard's bedroom, he was out cold. They were finally able to arouse him and said he was extremely intoxicated. Leonard's clothes were torn, his face haggard and covered with beard stubble. When they asked him who killed his brother, he said, you all are trying to put me on a stump. You know that he is dead. What else does it matter? Leonard continued to change his story. At first, a car accident was the cause of Stanley's death. Then, a gang of men in a jealous rage attacked him and killed him. Then, one man who lived two or three miles away from the Praetor residence killed him, but Leonard refused to give the man's name. Then the story became that Stanley attacked him with a pair of wire pliers and Leonard had to defend himself. Finally, in the end, Leonard admitted what investigators believed they already knew. Leonard and Stanley had a fight and Stanley died of his injuries. Leonard told the deputies, We had a fight and I hit him with a beer bottle for self-protection. He bled a lot, but we made up. We never had any trouble as long as we was sober. Leonard said he offered to take Stanley home, but Stanley refused, saying he was all right. Stanley was behind the wheel and Leonard in the passenger seat. When Leonard woke up and found Stanley dead, he switched places with him and drove home. Stanley's body was transported to Nashville where an autopsy performed by Dr. W.J. Corr found that Stanley died of a cerebral hemorrhage caused by a blow to the head. Leonard was still in jail when the murder warrant was sworn out and then issued by Barton Dement, a special general sessions court judge. Leonard was allowed to post a five thousand dollar bond and was released on may the sixth. After the autopsy, Stanley's body was taken to the Woodfin Memorial Chapel in downtown Murfreesboro to be prepared for burial. On May the 6th, the same day Leonard got out of jail and with him quite possibly present, Stanley's funeral was conducted. Charles Mitchell Pullius, a local Church of Christ minister, delivered the funeral sermon at Woodfin's chapel and Stanley was laid to rest in the old section of Evergreen Cemetery in downtown Murfreesboro. His grave is just yards away from that of a man who died during the final Allied push across the Rhine River and across the street from a man whose heroic actions in Guam resulted in him being posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. After Stanley was buried, Leonard remained free on bond and awaited the next steps in the legal process. Leonard went before a judge on May the 8th of 1950 and entered a formal plea of not guilty and waived a preliminary hearing in General Sessions Court. He was represented by local attorney Barton Dement Jr. On June 20th, witnesses were called to the grand jury for testimony, and on June 23rd, Leonard was formally indicted by a Rutherford County grand jury on a charge of murder. His trial was scheduled for October of 1950, but newspaper reports said it was doubtful that the trial would actually happen, as Leonard was a patient at a national hospital where he was undergoing treatment for an unspecified illness. The case received multiple continuances until March the 2nd of 1951, when the case was finally scheduled for trial. Everyone was present in the courtroom and ready to proceed when District Attorney General Hoyt Stewart dropped a bombshell. He entered, and was granted an order of nolle prosequi, an order of no prosecution in the case. It seems that one little detail had been overlooked by the authorities. From the beginning, it was suspected and confirmed by witnesses riding on a church bus who drove by at about 8 o'clock that evening that the fight that ended Stanley's life didn't actually take place in Rutherford County, Tennessee. Even deputies who worked the initial crime scene were confused as to where the crime took place and such was reported in the local newspaper. It was finally established that the brawl happened not even a hundred yards over the county line into Williamson County. The Rutherford County authorities didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute the case. The record of case 428 on the felony docket read, This day came the state by the Attorney General and moved the court that a nolle prosequi be entered in this case and said motion the court was pleased to allow. It is therefore ordered by the court that a nolle Prasikai be entered in this cause, and the defendant discharged. Leonard was a free man. It was still possible that the case could have been reopened in Williamson County and Leonard could be charged all over again. I performed an exhaustive search of the Williamson County archives. There are no records to indicate whether Williamson County authorities ever considered whether to prosecute Leonard Prater. I would like to say that Leonard learned his lesson and lived his life to become a very old man who was remembered more for being a war hero than a murderer. Sadly, such was not to be. In May of 1951, Leonard again had a run-in with authorities and was taken to court and fined $10 for possessing less than a quart of whiskey. Sometime after that incident, Leonard was again confined to the Veterans Hospital in Nashville and was visited by officers from the War Department where he was awarded his Bronze Star. After being released from the Veterans Hospital, Leonard apparently continued down the same path. On December 27, 1951, Leonard died in a local hospital of alcohol poisoning after drinking what was called wood alcohol, more commonly known as methanol. Woodfin Memorial Chapel, the same funeral home that buried Stanley, also buried Leonard. The obituary makes no mention of the brother who preceded him in death, only saying that Leonard was a World War II veteran who had participated in six campaigns. Leonard's total funeral bill at Woodfin's was $675. The Veterans Administration paid $150 of that amount, and the family covered the rest. On an unseasonably warm last Sunday afternoon of 1951, after a eulogy by local preacher Woodrow Medlock. Private First Class Leonard Grady Prater was buried in Evergreen Cemetery alongside his younger brother Stanley. If I told you I didn't get a case of the willies when I realized I was probably standing exactly where Leonard might have stood while mourning Stanley, I would be telling you a lie. Information for this presentation was found in the Murfreesboro Daily News Journal, the Nashville Tennessean, the Kingsport Times, as well as findagrave.com. Some details were gleaned from personal communication with the Prater Brothers' surviving records and from the Woodfin Memorial Chapel. The contents of the Order of Nali Prosikai were provided by the Rutherford County Archives in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Thank you for listening. We will be with you again on Hot Nights and Cold Bodies.